Why do we often see a letter that we don't pronounce? It's a strange word because it also has that image of coming off the rails. You would think you do not want to be derailed. You would think you want to remain on the track. And yet sports writers have come to use this phrase to come untracked. Coming up on Word Matters, a disputed pronunciation and the language of getting out of a rut. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Show of hands. When you want to say that something occurs frequently, do you say it happens often? Or does it happen often? Is one pronunciation more correct than the other? Here's Peter Sokolowski on a common adverb said two ways. So how do you pronounce the word O-F-T-E-N? That's my question. Poorly. I say often. I say often. I don't pronounce the T that's in often, but we know it's spelled O-F-T-E-N. And there's a very fair question, which is, why do we often (laughs) see a letter that we don't pronounce? And the thing about this word is, it's clear that it was pronounced in the past. It's a variant of the word oft, which we still have in English. We use it in phrases like oft repeated or oft quoted. We still have the words like oftentimes or oft times in the dictionary, but they all kind of sound archaic. Often is, of course, a standard English. It's a word we all use every day. And yet that T, that what's called a medial T, the T in the middle there, has dropped. And it just made me think about a few others has dropped, but it hasn't. I mean, we hear often, fairly often. (laughs) And it could be a simple choice that you make. It could be regional. I'm not exactly sure why some people say often and why some people say often today. However... Can I interject here? Because I didn't answer your question at first, because my story with the word often and the pronunciation of it is a little bit complicated. I said often until high school when a friend corrected me and told me that it was often, and I switched my pronunciation at that point. And I remember he pointed out to me that soften was not pronounced soften. Yeah. And I really felt like that just clinched it. And so I changed my own pronunciation because I am that kind of speaker. Adult me wouldn't have made the same switch, but I was convinced by the logic. I think also when I was learning how to spell, I often adopted pronunciations that would help me with spelling. Sure. I did that consciously. Who is this guy that told you this? We should look him up now and see (laughs) if he's a senior editor at a dictionary. Maybe he says often now. I don't know. See where that's got him in life. (laughs) Well, shame is a powerful motivator. It It was more logic than shame. Okay. It was more logic than shame. But I remember being surprised when I came to work for Merriam-Webster to see that when I started working for the company, the often pronunciation had a mark at the pronunciation mm. and obelisk to say that this is a disfavored pronunciation. Yeah, stigmatized. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the symbol in our print dictionaries, that little division symbol, the obelisk. If you see that in a print dictionary from Merriam-Webster, that means what follows is stigmatized. So it's recognized and common, but you will likely be criticized or challenged. Yes, you... we still have one at nuclear. Yeah, for I example. Think. But we don't have one at often anymore. And that's an interesting development. It only was dropped last year. And so in 2019, we dropped that stigmatized label because both of these variants, we can call them, are sufficiently common and sufficiently standard to be regular dictionary pronunciations. And that's kind of interesting. But soften and hasten 
and fasten and listen, they all have those T's, those medial T's that have been dropped. And they don't have this similar variant pronunciation. We don't say soften. That's not an acceptable pronunciation. We do Uh, say wanton. Wanton. That's an interesting point. These things often have to do with the vowels that surround them. And the fact is, if we go back to around 1600, we know and we learn from a work that was written at that time, the E.J. Dobson English pronunciation 1500 to 1700, notes that Queen Elizabeth herself did not pronounce the T. So Queen Elizabeth was sort of the model for this prestige pronunciation of often without the T. But phonetically spelled lists that were made even back then included the T. So it was recognized that this is how you spell the word, but it's not how you always say it. And so the prestige or upper class standard pronunciation starting around 1600 has followed the Queen's example. And even later, if you look in dictionaries, they will mark the pronunciation that uses the T is often used in singing or in kind of poetic readings. In our unabridged from 1934, we give that note also that says the pronunciation often, until recently generally considered as more or less illiterate, is not uncommon among the educated in some sections and is often used in singing. And first of all, that word illiterate is an amazing usage note in a dictionary that we, needless to say, do not use anymore. I was going to adopt that for myself now. More <laughs> or less illiterate is going to be the tagline on my social media. Well, more or less illiterate. More or less illiterate, and it's about a pronunciation. And a lot of pronunciations are influenced by spelling. We call them spelling pronunciations. Of course, there are words that we see more than we hear, for example, like albeit. There are a bunch of those that are much more frequently encountered in writing than they are in any kind of spoken language. And so you sometimes end up with pronunciations that sound more like the word looks than it may have sounded originally. Oh, definitely. And that makes me think of words that I think have largely fallen out of spoken English, that nobody knows the way that they used to be pronounced, the word W-A-I-S-T-C-O-A-T. Oh, yeah. I see it only in books, Yeah. yeah. right? And I say waistcoat. Yeah. And I believe that the pronunciation, if I'd lived 100 years ago, I would have said waistcoat. Yes. I'm not going to say waistcoat. I'm yeah. going to say waistcoat. That's exactly what's going on here, which is keep in mind that around 1600, when Queen Elizabeth established this standard, most people were illiterate. And as people were learning more and reading more, of course, they were influenced in their pronunciations by what a word was spelled like. And that's exactly what's happened here. And yeah, waistcoat sounds completely standard to me. And it might have sounded strange 100 years ago. Peter, you mentioned those other verbs that have the medial T and Mm -hmm. have the EN, like hasten. There's this sort of application to get to the state of the adjective. Soften means to make something soft. Hasten means to move hastily. With often, obviously, that's not the case. You don't often something. You don't make something more frequent by often. Often is just its own adjective. I would say that's certainly a, a word that I learned its pronunciation before I learned its spelling. I learned the concept of often before I learned it as a reader, I would say. It's not the kind of word that I would have read, then pronounced, and then wondered what it meant. By the time I understood it in reading and writing, then I understood what sound, what phonetic sound, and what word in my vocabulary I would associate it with. So I think in the case of often, I remember hearing people who would pronounce it often, and I didn't think they were necessarily saying it wrong. I just thought they were saying it differently. But I do wonder if there's that sort of extra effort of thought that we give to, like, should we pronounce the T in this and or not, that we don't give to words like like hasten or, right, or chasten or soften, or soften 
where those all seem to follow the EN pattern, the pattern of similar verbs that are in the same cluster. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a concept called language regard, and that is the idea that conscious thinking about language can influence the way that speakers of the language use it. And yeah. there, some of us think about these things, and others of us do not think about those things. It's not doesn't make you a better person if you think about these things. Some people like me will, <laughs> at the age of whatever it was, 16 or so, change my pronunciation of a word because I'm told that this is not the right pronunciation. Or I say C-L-O-T-H-E-S, clothes, mm -hmm. and I've been made fun of since college. It's a habit that I developed because this is how the word is spelled. And there's some people who think about the words that they use in a kind of a meta way, thinking in meta language as opposed to just using the language. Sure. I say clothes also. Do you say clothes? Yeah, absolutely. As opposed to what? Well, exactly. We give clothes as the principal pronunciation clothes. in our dictionary. And then yeah. we give also less frequently with the voiced theta, so clothes. I believe one of the first times I was asked to speak on television, I talked about something being a statistical outlier when <laughs> instead of an outlier, because that was a word that I'd never really heard a lot. I had seen it in print many times, but I had never really used it in my own discourse until I needed to that time. And it wasn't until later I realized it was pronounced outlier, because lying outside of the quantity or the norm, I guess, is what you're talking about when you say of an outlier. And yet I was looking at that L-I-E-R and I was thinking of words like likelier, sure. which seemed more familiar to me. So th there's a an internet meme that goes around sometimes, don't make fun of a person's pronunciation. If a person mispronounces words, it means they learned it by reading. The way that we get to these different pronunciations is sometimes never the same story twice, is what I'm saying. Right. Different modes of language acquisition. You can learn it through spoken language, or you can learn it through written language, or you can learn it through signed language, right? There are lots of different ways to acquire words. And there can be implications of having learned a word in one way or another. Like I'm sure in my family, everybody must have said often. That's why I said often. Sure. Do you say the R, the first R in library? I do now. That yeah. struck me as the kind of thing I was corrected. When I said library, I would have a teacher. That's quite stigmatized. Yeah. That's right. I would have that a teacher then say, no, it's a library. Of course, in school, you talk about libraries a lot because you have a library in your school usually. And February is tough. It's a hard word to say. And Wednesday. Of course, English phonetics and English pronunciation and orthography don't match. That's why we have spelling bees in English. And so there are words like Wednesday that if you were to pronounce it the way it's spelled, <laughs> it would seem kind of absurd. Right. Nobody says Wednesday. Yeah. Nobody says Wednesday. Nobody says colonel instead of colonel. Right. Uh, it was a February Wednesday in Connecticut. <laughs> see the colonel. <laughs> listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll get on track, or is it untracked, after the break. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. 
I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. I'm Amon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. If your favorite team is, perish the thought, going through a bit of a slump, some might say that they need to get back on track. But depending on the sports writer, one might also say they need to get untracked. Next up, here's Neil Servan on a pair of metaphors that are opposites on paper, but identical in application. If you watch a lot of sports or read about a lot of sports like I do, you come across what I would consider the go-to phrases for the sports writer or the sports announcer. They might talk about professional hitters in baseball. They might talk about momentum swings. They might say a player is a clubhouse presence. They might say a manager is a player's manager. They might describe a player as a gamer. There are all these phrases and idioms that get used over and over again in the description of games, in the description of players and how well players are doing. One that comes to mind is the phrase on track, which certainly exists beyond the realm of sports. We define on track, the phrase at the entry for track, as achieving or doing what is necessary or expected. And we see examples like students who are on track for college. We see examples like a bill that is on track to pass through the Senate. That means that it seems to be doing what it needs to do to become successful and be passed or go through college and succeed and do well. Yeah. And that seems like it's a railroad illusion, right? Is it? It seems likely. You're talking about the tenure track of a professor. The professor is in a train car. And if he just does what he's doing, then he's going to end up at the station where he wants to go. So we say also a person headed in the right direction is on the right track. We kind of modify it a little bit. It's possible to be on the wrong track as well. So you could say if you're in the right train, if you're headed to where you want to go, you're on the right track. And if you boarded the wrong train and you're headed to Albuquerque, when you didn't want to go to Albuquerque, you're on the wrong track. Very literal. So very literal. We also have the phrase off track, which can be used kind of in the way of other terminology if you think the country is off track, you might answer a survey. Do you think the country is on the right track or is it off track? Continuing the railroad metaphor, you could say something is coming off the rails. A relationship is coming off the rails. Obviously, that kind of promotes the image of a train being derailed, coming off its track and crashing. We also have the wrong side of the tracks, don't we, for railroad imagery, which was the unfashionable neighborhood in a town that's right. on the, the wrong right, side. Right, with the, the idea track. that the railroad track is dividing the neighborhoods right. and certain areas are more appealing to live than others. But when it comes to sports writing, there's this other term that gets used that I think causes some confusion, and that is untracked. So we define the word untracked in the dictionary as to cause to escape from a slump. If a batter is 0 for his last 13, he is in a slump, he's trying to do something new to get untracked, which means he wants to get out of the slump. That is so unfamiliar right. to me. Yeah, me too. So here's an example from Peter King, a sports writer for Sports Illustrated. Tennessee has lost two of three and can't seem to get its offense untracked. We need to find our edge and find it quickly, cornerback Samari Rolls said after a 16-13 loss to the Jaguars. 
Now we're talking about track in a different way. Now the track is something bad. You're in a slump and you're on this track and you want to get untracked. It's a strange word because it also has that image of coming off the rails. You would think you do not want to be derailed. You would think you want to remain on the track. And yet sports writers have come to use this phrase to come untracked to mean to break out of a slump. Yeah, it's a different track. It's a different type of track. And well, that's the question. Why are we talking about the track this way like it's a bad thing when up till now when we say we want to stay on track, we're on track for a good season, the track has always been a good thing. Could it be a different type of track? Well, that's one of the theories behind this is that the use of untracked early use might date from horse racing. Obviously, there's a track that the horses run on, but then the track might refer to a rut. The rut is a bad thing when it comes to horse racing. You, you don't want to be sinking down into the dirt as you're running. You kind of want to just be staying on the surface and not being slogged down by soft track, for example. So now what happens is people confuse to get on track or to come back on track with come untracked or to get untracked. So now we will often hear both of these phrases essentially to mean the same thing. To be on the track or to be untracked means to start having success again after you've been slumping for a while. Yeah, it's terribly confusing. But could the track be itself just kind of like a gauge or like a record, like a paper record, like he's on track, not an image, but kind of a way of recording progress? Does that make sense? Like recording strikes and balls, you're keeping track. Yeah, for keeping track and possibly I think as a pattern of success for track that does make some sense. It makes more sense to think of the track as something that you want to stay on. The fact of untracked then being used to mean come out of a slump then tells you that the track is now a bad thing to stay on. Right. The and oldest so, meaning of the word track is that it was a mark that was left by something that was moving. So a ship's wake was mm -hmm. its track oh, or tracking. if you were on a sleigh, the marks that you would leave behind, the marks left behind by something in motion. That's the earliest use of the word track. That's but, what happens when you follow an animal's tracks, right? right. It's a, sort of the same idea. And so you kind of want to stay when you're hunting or when you're pursuing a game. You want to stay on the track that was left by the animal before. Oh, so right? an untracked athlete doesn't want to be hunted down? <laughs> I can tell, Emily, you watch about as much sports as I do. <laughs> I am really reaching here. Uh, Neil, isn't there a possibility? Because we have other kind of similar idioms, like we have on the road to recovery has mm -hmm. no resemblance to on the road to perdition. You're both on the road, right. but one case it's great, one case it's not. Depends on where the road is headed. Right. Yeah. I agree that typically you would imagine one would rather stay on track than untracked, but might this just be a case where sometimes language doesn't make that much sense, particularly when dealing with sports? I yeah. think with sports writers in particular, they tend to have their pet phrases. Sports writers often work together. They're writing about the same thing, and frankly, when you're writing about a baseball game night after night, you're going to kind of look for these comfortable phrases that tell you whether a player is doing well or not. And I think they probably, writers tend to borrow from each other a lot, especially if they're working in close quarters like a press box. So the reason come on track just kind of settled in without really being questioned was probably because if writers of horse races were using it, those writers were then covering other sports and then so to be out of a slump meant to come untracked and it made sense to the writer, even if the reader never made a connection 
or a comparison between that and come on track. Well, it's like with language in any other sphere of understanding and influence. If the word is understood by its context and it makes sense to the people who mm -hmm. come across it and then it continues on its way and has that function in the language and certainly political writing also has its own similar phrases that get repeated and used, take on specific meaning that to an outsider are a bit opaque. Yeah, certainly. And the imagery that comes up might be different from one person to another. With yes. a track, one might be thinking less of a path like a road or a railroad gauge, then they are thinking of a rut. And of course, we have another idiom, to be in a rut means you're in a funk. You're having kind of this uh, pattern of failure. Yeah, why on. couldn't they you're, have said unrutted? This player yeah. needs to get unrutted. <laughs> it would make more sense, wouldn't yeah. it? Can you help them do that? I don't have that many connections in the sports world, really. I'm just right. a fan. Sports writers out there in the world, I vote. Stop I using untracked and start using unrutted. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or send us an email at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is a production of Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.